This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host, the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And as always, we have some amazing material for you today. Christopher, we've got another great show. First of all, we've got part two of our epic Paul McCartney interview from 1978, reflecting on some of his biggest hits. And he also takes a bit of a swipe at a band that sounded a bit like the Beatles in the 60s, but completely changed their sound in the 70s. Okay, Mm. so listen for that. I also have a chat with Ed Robertson of Bare Naked Ladies. This is a brand new interview in which I play an old clip of Ed talking about the early days of the band, and he reacts to that. It's a ton of fun. Can't wait for you to hear that. Also, we round out the show with some great clips from Heart from the 1970s. But first, let's hear part two of our interview with Sir Paul. Say live and let die. That's Paul McCartney with Live and Let Die from 1973. So last week, Paul talked about so much, including the Beatle days and working with Hollywood, creating uh, songs for movies, right, including right. Warren Beatty. Remember that? Yes. That's so funny. <laughs> That's interesting. And dealing with how John Lennon had lambasted him with the song, How Do You Sleep? Brutal. Right. And how the interviewer asked him the question, and McCartney says, you always ask me this question. And then he, and then Paul... <laughs> Foolishly asked the guy to repeat the what did what did John say about me in that song? How do you sleep? Oh, and he he says the he says the words again, and McCartney just goes, "Oh dear!" Like he just can't believe <laughs> a that John wrote it and b that the that the interviewer has the it's gall to say it again, throwing it in his yeah. face. Yikes! Yeah. yeah. How to end an interview in one easy lesson. Exactly. And where are we picking up this week, Christopher? Okay, here, Tom. It gets just a tiny bit nasty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A left-handed compliment to the Bee Gees. Let's call this when rock stars attack. They've been around long enough trying to get that type of success, you know, and it's they've been good enough for long enough. I, I think they're better now. I mean, I like them a lot, but I really didn't like things like Massachusetts myself. Although they were big hits and a lot of people liked them. I like some of the stuff they're doing now a lot better. Oh boy, there he goes, Paul McCartney, yeah. When Rock Stars Attack. And this time he's taking on the Bee Gees. Funny if you think about Paul McCartney's comments about the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. He likes that song, Staying Alive from 1977, more than he likes their late 60s classic, Massachusetts. That's interesting. But they had other songs that I thought were more Beatlesque than either of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What well, are you thinking well, of? Which one would you say is the most Beatlesque of all? Well, to me, it's uh, Lonely Days. Because oh. that's so, that's so Beatlesque. Like that, well, you, you know the part. What is that? Good morning. Good. Mr. Sunshine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've brightened up my day. Well, the part that kills me is on the end because it sounds so much like a Lennon ad lib. The Lonely Days, Lonely yeah. Nights. Yeah. Wait, what about you without uh, my woman? Yeah. Oh, play that, Adam. Play that. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love that vocal. 
I love that back and forth. What do they call it? Call and response. Lonely yeah. days, lonely days. Oh, that's a great song. Great mm-hmm. song. Okay, so let's continue with our 1978 chat with Sir Paul. This time, he's talking about the music that had a very profound effect on him and almost every other kid in England in the late 1950s, skiffle music. England, really, you know, was that uh, with Lonnie Donegan, uh, who was very big in Britain at the time, and because he used to, his act was to stand there and sing with a guitar. And then you had all the influences coming in from America with Chuck Berry and Elvis and uh, a lot of people there who stood there with guitar. And a guitar was a not that expensive instrument to buy and not that hard to pick up. And a lot of the songs, then you started to get Buddy Holly coming in and a lot of all of the, those people's material had just three chords, sort of A, D and E probably, you know, the major three chords that were used. So the millions of kids all over England, uh, Britain, picked up guitars and started strumming them and learned those three chords. And once you'd learned them and stuck a washboard behind you and a T-chest bass, you know, those old, they used to get the T, like the, and, and they used to get the old T-chest bass and they'd stick a broom handle on the top of it and a piece of string and you go, dum, 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 dum. It sounded just like that. And, uh, you know, they used to have things on it, like our fella was called Ivan, and he used to have Jive with Ive, the ace on the bass, you know, and all that stuff. Well, it all started like that, you know. And uh, so that was, you know, during those days, used to change, chop and change like mad kind of thing, but it all didn't take place in most of the public's eye kind of thing. A few people knew about it, you know. In fact, we used to get murder when we changed Ringo, uh, when we put Ringo in place of this other drummer called Pete Best. It was very good and everything, but we thought Ringo was better and would fit better with what we were doing. Uh, we had a lot of trouble, like, from the local fans, you know, really thought we'd kind of done Pete in, which is, you know, understandable and stuff, but obviously, like, you, you have to just choose for the music and how you think it's all going to work. And if you've got a, a team, it's like a football team or something, you can have great players, but they just don't support each other enough. And once you get a team that does... You can really go places with that. Oh. All right, what's next? He talks about being a songwriting obsessive. Yeah, well, luckily for me, I mean, I like songs. Uh, I still want to write better songs than I write. I've always wanted to make kind of a decent record, you know, that I could just put on the turntable and just keep playing. I think that's really just so good. Um, I suppose it is part of what just keeps me writing new songs but I can't stop really you know I just like writing songs it's like a hobby you know uh, if if I'm doing something else I, I you know just say I'm out uh, banging some fencing or something you know in the garden I'd be a song keeps going through my head you know so it's it's almost a disease really you know I can't stop it but um, I like it so you know I'm not gonna knock it kind of thing so uh, I, it just seems to be something I just keep doing you know I think what you said, you know, may be true. Sometimes when you are too comfortable, you can just lay back a little bit too much and it can all come off a bit soppy. But it's amazing, you know, of course, what, do, what is comfort? I mean, comfort isn't just comfortable chairs. You know, it's comfort, it's peace of mind and stuff. And um, that's hard to get, no matter how comfortable you get in other ways. You know, peace of mind is like a hard one to get. But I still think even if I had kind of total peace of mind, which, I mean, I'm not doing badly on, you know, I'm doing quite well on all of that. But if I, if I really achieved it totally, I still have a feeling I'd be writing um, peace of mind songs or something, you know, because I, I, don't, I don't see me stopping it. 
You know, that really does show how reflective Paul McCartney is about his own obsession with songwriting and his happiness with his life in general. That's a great clip. I love Mm -hmm. that one. The domestic Paul. Yeah. And finally, Tom, wrapping up this extensive McCartney interview, would you call it a Macafest, by the way? Is that that a fair description? I would do that. Yes, I would. But I would like to remind you that it is not the last clip. We have one after that. And you're the one who's been lobbying for me to play it. So it's kind of ironic that that uh, that you're not acknowledging this. I'm a forgetful man at times, Tom. (laughs) That's why I need a script. (laughs) So finally... A reaction to punk music, which was very much the music of the day at the time of this interview. I mean, the only pressure is the one that sort of the media creates, which is, oh, I mean, I don't know if the media creates it or if it's just there anyway, which is that kind of pressure of, well, the older rock and rollers can't rock and the younger ones can, which gets you a bit annoyed, you know, because, I mean, if you've been playing rock and roll as long as I've been doing it or as long as some of the other bands have been doing it... uh, I don't think it means you can't do it anymore, you know. So I suppose there was a bit of pressure created there with young versus the older generation of it all. But as far as I'm concerned, like, I like to see young groups coming through and doing stuff. And a lot of the records that came out, I thought were just good records, you know, whether they were, I didn't like the image of the group or whatever, you know. I mean, it's just fashion. seems to me it's just fashion. I mean, in, in, when I was, like, 15, it was... Uh, DAs and, uh, you know, drainies and, uh, you know, drapes and Ted's outfits, you know, the, the Teddy Boy thing. And now it's it's punks, you know, it's just safety pins instead of um, bootleg ties or whatever, you know, bootlace ties. So there's no real difference, you know, it's just when you talk to the kind of kids in the young groups, they're, they're just as the same as we were, it's exactly the same thing. They're just trying to make a buck and they're just trying to get uh, noticed. So, I mean, it doesn't really pressurise me, you know. Um, yeah, I like them, you know, but some of the ones I've liked kind of haven't... It's The trouble, I suppose, is that, like, when when you get really very far out, you, you get too far out for your own good, you know, you can be really exciting and way out and crazy, like, say, uh, the Pistols, Sex Pistols were. But uh, something in all of that's got to catch up with you. There's... Just, I don't think that stuff can sustain. It's, there's too much high-energy stuff, and you just wipe yourself out after a couple of years. Um, so, you know, I mean, I like Pretty Vacant. I thought it was a really good rock and roll record, you know. Um, so on that level, like, I liked groups like that. But when they start getting pitched against you, you know, us versus them, I don't like all that pressure, because I just don't believe it myself, you know, because if you talk to those guys, I mean, there's not that much of that going anyway. It's created a lot by people who want to write about it. Um, A lot of the young kids I see, you know, just really into it, just exactly as I was, just like guitars, they like electric stuff, and they want to bang away at it. They like the singing styles maybe a little bit different from how it was, but that, we were always changing anyway, you know, so they're only doing what we did. And uh, so it's really... I hope they do great, you know, because it's good for everyone. Okay, Christopher, great stuff from Paul McCartney from the late 70s from our archives on Famous Lost Words. Now, we have to go back to Christopher's archives when he had the pleasure, the honor of interviewing Paul McCartney. What year was it, Christopher? Uh, 1989. It was the time of the... Wow. Uh, 
the tour called Flowers in the Dirt and then the album of the same name. Right. It was around that time. I know he worked with Elvis Costello around that time. And we actually played quite a bit of this interview in one of the very earliest episodes of Famous Lost Words. Now, there's at least one clip that we didn't play, and it's one that you've brought up with me recently, and it's about him. What's he talking about? Which, which Beatles classic is he talking about in this? Tom, it's all about Eleanor Rigby. It was just that first line of a melody. That thing was just a musical thing, plonking away on E minor. Dun, 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 dun. I just got the tune there, and then uh, the I like the name Eleanor. We were working with Eleanor Brom, the actress who was in Help. So I like the name Eleanor, but I wanted a, a second name, so I waited quite a while for that. And walking round uh, Bristol City. Uh, one time there was a shop just sort of said Rigby and I thought that's a great name but your names are hard you know and if you write a bit you, you'll find that you can't just sort of go Johnny Hurricane it, it, it doesn't work you know real people's names are always amazing like people from my school when I was a kid you know Grace Pendleton they just seem to work you know because th- they're real people's names I don't know what it is and then all the, then once I had her name, um, it was a minory kind of song. So then I think that the picks up the rice in the church. I think that came with the melody, just that idea. So then it kind of set the whole tone of the song. So what would anyone who would be picking up the rice in the church after a wedding be like? Well, lonely, possibly, you know. So then it became a song about lonely people. Great stuff. Paul McCartney talking about the creation of the song Eleanor Rigby to our very own Christopher Ward from 1989. We also had other clips of Paul from the late 70s right here on Famous Lost Words. Up next, we have Tom with a new interview with Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah, and I got to play him a great clip from his past. That's next on Famous Lost Words. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you a house. I would buy you a house. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. Tom, a few weeks ago, you had the opportunity to speak with Ed Robertson of Bare Naked Ladies. Now, I know him well from the Much Music days and the early days of the band. Oh, yeah. We get into how they got started with one of the cheapest music videos of all time. Okay. Well, let's hear it. Tom Chokic with Ed Robertson. Okay, Ed. Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I wish Christopher was here because, of course... Christopher wrote a book about much music that you were a big part of. Yeah, he interviewed me for That's that That's right, for sure. So we'll talk a little bit about that. One of the things about this show is that we play uh, classic interviews with uh, people who have been on the show, long lost interviews. I got to tell you, you guys have always been a great friend of us and have always brought game when it comes to being on our morning show or, or, or traveling with us. I do remember in um, 2010... I'm already off my script, by the way. Crane Beach in Barbados. And we bring you guys down to Barbados with us. And we also bring a boy band. I can't remember their names. I think it's, let's call them new kids on the block, just for (laughs) argument's sake. Yeah. So in hindsight, they were fine. They did their choreography. They did their dance moves. Nice to meet the guys. Nice enough guys. You guys mopped the floor and I'd hate to pit artists against artists but you guys put on a clinic as to how to do a great concert and real instruments right real live vocals and 
a great sense of humor and a great vibe to your show. Do you remember? Do you remember the show? Well, if I'm being honest, I stood side stage for that show and thought, "How the hell are we going to follow these guys? They're right. amazing!" Right? You know, um, the singing was great. The choreography was amazing. It was like a show. Right. Uh, and I was standing side stage going, oh, my God, how do we go after this? Really? That's the way you felt. Uh, but we just got up and did our thing. Yes. And our thing is the opposite of that thing. That's exactly right. You know, yeah. our thing is unscripted, spontaneous, Un-slick. not slick. Yeah. Um, I've always said to people, my superpower as a performer is I don't care if I screw up. Right. And that is such an asset as a live performer. Right. Um, and in fact, I kind of enjoy moments in the show where things go off the rails a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it lets everybody know that it's real, that it's live, um, and that we don't take it too seriously. Don't you find that when people talk to you after the show, because we do, you know, I do morning radio, and we plan stuff, and we, you know, even think of a good joke before we go, oh, let's tell that joke. Gonna... The feedback we get afterwards is, oh man, when you guys screwed up, or when you forgot Every time. what to say, Every that's time. my favorite part of the show. And you're going, oh, my God, why do I even work on the show, right? Why yeah. do you even plan anything? Yeah, well, that's it. And, and I watch so many performers get frustrated um, if they make a mistake. And it throws them not just while they made the mistake, but it takes them a couple of songs to get back into the groove right they overcompensate for a while it's up in their head yeah they're, they're not see their frustration yeah they're not focusing on the show or the crowd they're just dwelling on the mistake um and it without fail when something like that happens in a show afterwards people will say to me oh my god when you screwed up and forgot the words <laughs> it was so great it was so funny the way you yes, handled it because it's real people love the real and they also love the curtain being pulled back sometimes. totally yeah Totally. So what I'm going to do is uh, we have so much audio of you guys from the past, but I'm just going to play. This is a basic one as to kind of how you guys got started. So this is kind of an undated clip. And I'll just this is from play. 1963. Sure, sure. We'll say that. It sort of started because my high school band yeah. was booked to play a fundraiser for a food bank right at City Hall here in Toronto. Uh-huh. And uh, when the band broke up, uh, they called me a week before and said, you're still on for the fundraiser, right? We're really counting on you. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, yes, uh, I am. Uh, but the name of the band has changed to Bare Naked Ladies, which was just a fake band name that Steve and I had made up. Mm-hmm. I called him and said, do you want to be in the band Bare Naked Ladies? And we did the gig the next week. There you go. So what do you remember about those early days of the band? Well, I remember thinking that every show was going to be our last show. Right. You know, because, uh, you know, I had had worked pretty hard through high school in being in this band and rehearsing and and making sure everything was like killer. And then when I started singing with Steve, it was all just off the cuff. Everything was kind of spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And it was because it wasn't supposed to be long term. Right. I was just filling in a gig that I already had booked. Right. There's no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. And all fun. And for a long time, it was, okay, well, let's just do one more. Yeah. Okay, let's do one more. That was 30-plus <laughs> years ago. Right. I'm still calling Ty and Jim, hey, we got one more show somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the vibe of your shows is always very loose and fun. But you have to be in a certain mindset to do that. Touring is tough. 
Sure. And being, you know, under the glare of the lights is tough. How do you guys relax enough to be funny? Because, man, there's sometimes when I'm up on the stage, I might be emceeing something or even DJing, and I'm going, I don't feel it. I don't feel funny. I don't feel like I can connect with the audience just by turning on a mic. Thankfully, I'm just playing music some nights. How do you guys relax enough so that you can be funny with enough, even if you're like pissed off at Tyler for some reason, you still have to be able to joke with him. How do you do that? I can't even imagine that scenario where I would be pissed off at Tyler <laughs> for something. What I've, could that possibly I've met be? Tyler. I've seen him naked. Literally. Have yeah, seen that's him the naked. thing that triggers me the most. Yes. Nudity. Uh, his right. nudity specifically. <laughs> right. Um, no, I, you know, we have a lot of advantages when we walk up onto that stage. Mm. We have played together for 30 years. Right. We trust each other. We love each other. We respect each other. And I think the key to what we do, or one of the keys to what we do, is we take the music extremely seriously. We work really hard on making sure the harmonies are good and the arrangements are good and the songs are good, you know, and that everybody's playing well. The key then is to not take yourself too seriously. That's perfect. So yeah. the music is like we, we want it to be great. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, that's at the root of every Bare Naked Ladies show. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, those guys were so much fun and it was so silly, but man, they were, the singing was good. Yeah. You know, that's, I don't want people to walk away from our show going like, oh, they just screwed around up there. Right. They just, yeah. I want them to leave going, wow, the music was really good. And it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's how I relax when I get on stage is like, I know the music's going to be good because mm-hmm. we work really hard on it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just heard an uh, instance of that yesterday on YouTube. I was uh, doing a little bit of research. And there you guys are. It's one of the hot, I would have to say it must have been one of the early highlights of your career. Toronto guys, Scarborough guys. And you end up releasing the album Gordon, which, by the way, in my opinion, is one of the top Canadian albums of all time. I would put it in the top ten. It is a masterpiece of pop and humor and melody, great lyrics, a lot of fun, everything. I just love that album, and I've loved many more since. But that's really set the standard for you guys, and that was a high bar, by the way. So a few months later, you're playing four sold-out shows at Massey Hall. What was that like? You know, you guys being from Toronto and doing this homecoming, and I was at one of those shows. They were mind-boggling. Mind, they were very exciting. <laughs> it was um, impossible to describe what that time was like mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we put this band together. We toured across the country in a van a couple of times. We were doing all the university clubs mm-hmm. and – we were having a blast, you know, and as I said, I, I don't think there was any expectation that it was long term. Sure. Because it was, you know, we got turned down by every major label. Like, so we didn't think we had a career. Mm-hmm. We just knew we were having a really good time. Um, so we kept doing it. Yeah. And then we started selling out bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger places. Right. So when we finally we ended up signing a record deal um, with Seymour Stein and, and Reprise in America. Um, and it, it, everything got really legit really quickly. <laughs> but we were still in that mindset. We were still 
21 year old kids, you know, having a blast. So it it was sort of this incongruous thing. It kind of didn't make sense that we sold out Massey Hall four nights in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember the guys from Rush sent us a bottle of champagne uh, and they, they said, guys, it was only supposed to be three nights because <laughs> they had held the previous record. Oh, that's amazing. At three. That's so, funny. So there I was, you know, just a few years after being in a cover band that played 25 Rush songs. Right. Then I'm getting a bottle of champagne from the Rush guys. That's amazing. Congratulating me. So it, it was kind of surreal. And, and I don't think in our heads – in a lot of ways, we hadn't really shifted gears yet. Mm-hmm. We were still that scrappy group of guys in a van. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were like the number one selling band in the country. So let's talk about the video days. And your earliest video cost $1 to make. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, we, I think we probably had a show at the Horseshoe that night. And uh, Speaker's Corner was all the rage in right, Toronto. So explain, right, so explain to people not from Toronto what Speaker's Corner was. Well, not only not from Toronto, but uh, to people in the age of YouTube and cell phones. Like, we didn't have that in, in 1990, <laughs> right. right? So there was a video booth on the corner of Queen and John, and you could go in there and drop a loony in and say whatever you wanted to say. And right. that's mostly what it was. Right. It was people saying... Yeah, you know, I live on uh, uh, Parliament, and the parking is just ridiculous. Somebody's got to do something about, right. you know, we need a bike lane on, yeah. you know. It, it was community voices, and every week those were compiled together and aired on a Sunday afternoon show, Speaker's yeah. Corner. Yeah. And it was a, it was a hit. Like, right. people liked it. Yeah. It was Toronto citizens speaking their mind. Sometimes right. it was hammered people <laughs> after they'd been out at the clubs all yes. night. It was people proposing. Right. It was, you never knew what you were going to get. That's right. And there was a lot of stuff, a lot of videos that people spent a dollar on that we could never have shown on TV. I'm sure. I, I've heard about those. I'm sure they exist still <laughs> on, on illicit hard drives. Um, but so we had a show probably at the Horseshoe, maybe at the Ultrasound Show Bar. Um, we said, well, let's put a dollar in and cram the whole band into the booth and play a song. <laughs> and let's see if they air it, you know. Um, not only did they air it, but it went into heavy rotation on much music. For a dollar. One dollar. <laughs> and I remember the floor director, Dennis Saunders, at the time, when he contacted us, he said, I can't, I can't believe you guys are the first guys to use this as a blatant promotional right, device. Right, it, Absolutely. So then you guys hit it big, and you have to make legit professional videos. Uh, From what I understand, that was a bit of an awkward time for you guys because you're not a slick band. It was a weird transition for us. I don't think we were really comfortable being any degree of seriousness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, we spent so much time kind of mugging for the camera and, and just being over-the-top silly that when it came time to do like serious photo shoots and serious video shoots it just kind of didn't make sense to us right it wasn't really until um we had huge american success in the in the late 90s like, that's the first time we had an a and r person and a stylist mm-hmm. like the band was already 10 years old at the time right with hits and records and all that that was our first time dealing with a stylist yeah um 
So it, that was a huge transformation. We'd already made a dozen videos at the time. And at one point, you guys were supposed to do a video for uh, featuring two of the people from Friends for the Friends um, soundtrack album, for lack of a better word. <coughs> what was it? Was it Shoebox? It was for Shoebox. Right. So. And so Lisa Kudrow, Matt LeBlanc were supposed to show up at the video, and you guys had planned the whole video around them. What happened with that video? They just didn't show up. <laughs> And, you know, we were we were totally like thrown for a loop at the time. I was like, how, how could they? Now I totally get how could they because they were huge freaking stars. Right. And probably the network had, uh, you know, agreed to on something their on their behalf and they didn't even know about it. And they probably went, we're not going to some sound stage on right. our day off to right. shoot a video for a band we've never heard of, you know. Um, so they just didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And we were crushed like that that could have been a huge opportunity for us mm-hmm. um and instead it just kind of fizzled sure. away one of the big highlights i think happened in 1997 when one week became one of the very few canadian songs to hit number one on the billboard uh hot 100 it was a huge record what did that song mean for you guys in terms of popularity acceptance that kind of thing it meant a lot of different things because one week was actually a song I didn't think was going to be on the record. Oh, okay. Um, one week is a song that I improvised into a camera and then transcribed it. Okay. So <laughs> I wrote that song in two minutes. Right. Did and you write the whole song? Yeah. Okay. So that in itself, like the lyrics for that are hilarious. They don't make any sense. They don't, but it's about a broken relationship. <laughs> yes. Right? And so, you know, the fact that it could be so fun and still be based on that is amazing. Yeah. So that song was, um, I thought might be a fun B-side for one of the singles uh, or like a bonus track on the record. And when Sue Drew, as I mentioned, this was our first time dealing with an A&R person at a record company, artisan repertoire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Sue, I remember, called me and said, we want to lead with one week as the first single. And I actually laughed. I thought she was making fun of me, you know, because I wasn't sure it was even going to be on the record. Right. But it was a real uh, realization for me that this uh, silly, spontaneous thing that we only do live can actually be part of what we do on the record as well. Absolutely. Because we'd always thought, okay, the studio is the temple and everything's got to be perfect and everything's got to be polished. And then live is where we just go nuts. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time where they melded, really. Mm-hmm. And that, that silly, spontaneous thing went down on the record. That's amazing. And it's, uh, you know, it's our only number one in America. It's been one week since you looked at me. Cock your head to the side and said I'm angry. Five days since you laughed at me. Saying, get back together, come back and see me. Three days in the living room. I realize it's all my fault, but couldn't tell you yesterday. Oh, that is great. Ed Robertson of Bare Naked Ladies speaking with our own Tom Jokic on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. That's Hart. Ann Wilson, Nancy Wilson, crazy on you. Tom, if you want to get technical about it, there was a version of the band Hart called White Hart that formed in 1967 in the Seattle area and had no women in the band. Oh, wow. Um, Eventually, in 72, 73, Better Judgment and Fate took over, and Ann Wilson joined the band, followed soon by her guitar-playing sister, Nancy. 
A band member's brother escaping the draft moved to Canada, and that led to a relocation to Vancouver from Seattle. And it's there that the band built a following. They got a record deal, recorded their first album, Dreamboat Annie, at the legendary Mushroom Studios. The album broke in Canada, eventually going two times platinum. It was platinum in the U.S. the following year, featuring the rock radio classics Magic Man and Crazy on You. Heart have had hit albums, get get this, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2010s. And that is a remarkable run of success. They've sold over 35 million mm-hmm. records, 20 top 40 hits, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013 by Soundgarden's Chris Cornell. The band recently reunited after a split between the sisters of about three years. At a recent show yeah. in Toronto, opening act Cheryl Crow said, Without the Wilson sisters... I probably wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing. Nice little mm. tribute there. This interview is with Anne, and she looks back at the earliest days of the band. Okay, so here Anne talks about the idealism and the naivete of their early years. We didn't have any big kind of um, outline for what we wanted to communicate. We just wanted people to hear our music, whatever that was, you know. And it was just me and Nancy's songs. And they're about all these different things, you know. Most of the time it was love, it was about human relationships, that kind of stuff. Um, and I suppose we had a bit of a missionary attitude in those days, too. We thought, okay, we're going to carry the word to the people, you know, type thing. And then, like, like, it took us a long time to realize that we didn't know what the word was, you know. We, we, weren't, the, we weren't the ones that had the, this secret knowledge or something, you know, that was going to save the world. We were just these people who were going along in the world like everybody else, you know except we happen to be artists and have a talent for for uh, singing about it. Uh, we just really wanted to to make records. That was our big dream, you know. And then, like, after that, that was the very toppermost in our minds. And after that, we didn't know, you know. We didn't know about the all the problems or the pitfalls or anything. We just thought, wow, a record. Tom, herein <laughs> lies a dissertation <laughs> oh on... Loopholes and dichotomies. <laughs> this is open to interpretation, so help. We are so diverse just by nature, you know, that, uh, that it would be nice to be a little bit more loopholes sometimes for people to know what heart is, because heart is so elusive. I mean, you can't just say, okay, heart's a rock band, you know, that does heavy metal, or heart's mm-hmm. the other thing. Um, it's easy not to get ourselves loopholed. <laughs> you know, there's no way we can, really. I don't know, I've always fought really hard against people that wanted us to do that because I think that one of the strongest things that heart has um, is that kind of dichotomous thing and uh, so if they want us to do that they're just going to have to um, I don't know uh, make a surrogate heart and have them do it or something you know because an artificial heart <laughs> right yeah good one. Oh, do I ever love Anne and Nancy that's great and talks about how sisterhood strengthened the band. It's special in that I think we give each other a lot more chances. Like, if she was just my friend, which she is, but if she was only my friend, um, I think our our um, thing together would be a lot more brittle, you know? Like, the times when we have rows, we would be more apt to break than we are now, because uh, it's family, you know? So. So, like, if we get if it gets really bad, you know, we can just go, okay, come on, let's just go over to Mom and Daddy's and let's just have dinner and let's just pull out for a while and let's just um, be sisters. And it seems to get solved, you know, it seems to 
or uh, dissipate a lot of things that might hang in the air between us. That's really interesting. I'm glad they recently patched up their drama to reunite a few months ago. It was ugly. It all had to do with an event that happened in August of 2016. Anne's husband was arrested and subsequently pleaded guilty to assaulting Nancy's 16-year-old twin sons. That's what the rift was all about. The incident took place during a heart performance, and it just got really bad between the sisters. They finally worked it out. I was really worried that they were not going to work it out because they were barely talking to each other from that point on. But three years later, there they are reuniting, and honestly, there aren't enough hard rockin' bands left, let alone hard rockin' bands led by two sisters like Anne and Nancy Wilson. It's so great to have them back. That's a big one to get over, I have to say, in contemplating that, but nevertheless. Um, Here, Anne recalls the origins of the debut album's title track, Dreamboat Annie. Well, it was meant to be, when I first conceived it, it was going to be like a Beach Boys song. It was going to go, Annie, Annie, Dreamboat Annie, you know, like water, water, you know, but then then I went, no. (laughs) And so then Nance had this music, and all I had was this poem that was about... It was kind of a metaphor where the where she was a ship, you know, and she was tied offshore, you know, and uh, and she was this ship by that name that goes around to all these different ports in the world, and all the ports are different songs on the record type thing. And so then Nance had this this little piece of picking, you know, we just sort of put them together. But it is supposed to be this like a little wooden ship. Oh, any dreamboat, any ship of dream. And finally, Tom, the song Heartless from the album Magazine had an odd origin story. That was written from life about this guy that I used to know and Nancy used to know who was really pretty, well, I thought he was pretty mean because, because in, uh, like, I saw him uh, pick up this one girl and say, okay, come on over, and then he would go and pick up this other girl, and then she'd come over too, and so then the girls would go, Greow! I know they'd had this cat fight, which was what he wanted. And that just grossed me right out, you know, like I went, God, how weird, that's, that's really mean to the girls, I, I suppose they're all consenting and stuff, you know, but I mean, God, that is really weird, and so, uh, then again, I just had this word, Heartless, that I thought was a good song title, and so... Okay, so that's not the only heart song to be based on a true story. Barracuda was based on a record company guy who was not a great person. (laughs) Magic Man was the true story of a guy that Ann Wilson lived with. She did not want to come back home because she lived with this quote-unquote Magic Man who was kind of her first boyfriend and was a bit of an awakening for her. And if you listen to the song with that in mind, you'll really get the point of that. Very interesting. Tom... I interviewed Nancy Wilson with uh, her husband, Cameron Crowe, after the release of his film, Say Anything, in 1989. What? Yeah. Nancy had contributed a song to the soundtrack called All for Love, and she revealed that Anne was less than happy that Nancy sang lead on the band's first number one hit, These Dreams. (laughs) Now, of course, how could it not be a number one given that it was written by Martin Page and Bernie Toppin, the team behind... Yeah, yeah. We 
built this city. Huh? Oh, I mean, don't ruin it, Christopher. Guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. They need to, honestly, seriously, Martin Page and Bernie Toppin need to donate all of that money that they made from that horrible song, We Built This City, to charity. To or just give it to me. Oh, sure. charity. Like, what about Nancy? Did you like talking to her? She was so sweet. She was one of the nicest people I've ever met in the, oh, in the rock man. world. I would do and Cameron Crowe was absolutely hilarious. And at the time, because half the interview was with him, because it was his movie. Um, but he, he was very surprised because I said, oh, you, you won a Grammy Award for uh, album liner notes. And he's like, oh, yes. It was to Bob Dylan's biograph. And I said, oh. so... Did you have to meet Bob and talk to him about the notes? Because it sounded like really insider stuff. And he's like, yeah. oh, yeah. And so he described the meeting with Dylan, and he did a really, really good Bob Dylan impersonation. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and it was all it was all recorded. And then subsequently, and this is I think, one of the only times this ever happened, he wrote me a note and said, thanks for the interview. It was great to meet you. Sorry about the Dylan <laughs> impersonation. <laughs> Famous Lost Words is a production of iHeartRadio and Orbit Media. Our show is produced by Adam Karsh, Yay! executive producer, Mr. Rob Farina. Yay! Don't forget to get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. And stay in touch with us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Thank you for listening. 